The inflation crisis continues to deepen as the pace of price increases picks up and workers find it harder and harder to afford the basic necessities of life. But the Federal Reserve Board remains intent on hiking interest rates further, possibly to induce a recession as they seek to stabilize the economy at the expense of those who have already suffered so much. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate everyone's support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolff's book, Understanding Marxism, that's been recently released. It features a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, very, very happy to have you. Richard, obviously on everyone's mind is inflation. I mean, I've been able to go around the country the last few months, including areas that are considered to be so-called red states, not red in the socialist sense, but red in the Republican sense. And obviously, the the number one topic for everyone in different parts of the country is the price of gasoline, also the price of food, the price of rent. Now, because of the Federal Reserve Board hiking interest rates so high, the, the mortgage rate, the rate that people pay if they own a home, which is really not owning a home, the bank owns the home, but you pay the bank every month so that you can pretend to own the home and maybe eventually you will own the home. But those interest rates have almost doubled in the last few months. In other words, there's intentionality in one level, the Federal Reserve Bank, the dictatorship of capital, let's call it that, is deliberately raising interest rates with the idea that this would be the solution to inflation. That's not gonna hurt Elon Musk that much, even though he might've lost 30 billion He's still got another 100 billion or 120 billion. Same with the other people in the 1%. But it's really taking a toll on working folks. Anyway, let's start there. Yes. Well, I think there are several things that should be emphasized about this inflation. Number one, that the Federal Reserve, let us all remember, is the central bank of the United States. It has that funny name, Federal Reserve. 
only because of the peculiar history of something called the Bank of the U.S. in the 19th century. So we have a central bank, and that central bank has as its probably its number one obligation, its number one charge written into its founding documents, the passage by Congress that created it, and so on, that it is to, quote unquote, maintain price stability. That language means its job is to avoid inflation. Therefore, step one is to understand that in this capitalist system, we have erected an institution specifically given the job of maintaining price stability, and it has failed to do that. And that ought to be front and center a question. Is that failure something we attribute to the particular individuals who sit on the board of governors that runs the Federal Reserve? Or is it an institutional problem that would exist, whoever the people are occupying the chairs around that table? We don't have that conversation. We act as though the inflation were dropped on us by some mysterious force we can't quite get our heads around. And then we watch while the Federal Reserve comes up and deals with the problem. This lovely way of presenting them puts them in a good light, puts the failure that we already are living through out of our picture, out of our minds, uh, but we shouldn't permit that to happen. So let me explain where the inflation comes from one more time, because this too is obscured in the way the mass media deal with it. So let's be real simple, because it's not a complicated story. Inflations happen if and only if, if and only when employers raise the prices of whatever it is they sell. The employer of the factory worker, the employer of the office worker, the employer of the store worker. The employees, the mass of us, have nothing to say about prices other than to pay them. But the employer has the second wonderful position of actually setting the prices. So we ought to put the finger of blame for an inflation where it belongs on the employers who raised the prices. Nobody else did. No one held a gun to their heads. No government official ordered the increase of prices. That was something the employers did. And don't be fooled by the employer's PR, that's a polite way of saying lying, when the employers try to blame anybody else they can think of for what they just did, namely raise prices. Of course, they don't want us to put the finger of blame on them, because then we might say the solution is to take from them the power to set prices. If we did that, and we had, for example, some collective or democratic way of setting prices, we wouldn't have the inflation 
in the first place. So let's be real clear, which we aren't, that it's employers. A tiny percentage, less than 1% of Americans are employers. The rest of us are employees. So let's face that. Now let's look at what might be motivating the employers to raise prices, even though everyone is taught rising prices, i.e. an inflation, is not a good thing, is dangerous, has unfair, unjust consequences. All of that is well known. I won't rehearse all of that. So then why do employers raise their prices? The first and the only honest answer is the same answer that we give when asking whatever else an employer is doing, asking the question, why is the employer doing that? We know the answer because it's what's taught in every business school, in every business course, that the decisions an employer makes are designed to maximize the profit the industry or the enterprise they're in charge of can generate. In other words, the basic answer to the question, why do we have an inflation now, is because it's profitable for businesses to do that. And that's why they're doing it. If it weren't profitable, well, then they wouldn't do it. That's what they tell us all the time. And there's no reason not to believe them. And why is it profitable now? Why are they eager to do it now? Well, let's see. Number one, here's why they're eager. They just had two rough years, you know, like we all have from the pandemic, from the economic crash we've just gone through. They didn't do so well, most of them. Some did great, but most of them didn't do that well. And so they want to make up for two years of profits that either weren't there or were very, very diminished. And the way to do that quickly, yeah, raise prices a lot in a hurry, and you draw much more money. You jack up your profits to make up for what you didn't get before. That's one reason. Here's a second reason, although it doesn't really count for much. It goes like this. I'm raising my prices because my inputs, the things that I have to buy to produce whatever I produce, the computer for my office, the machine for my factory, the counter for my store, whatever, the price has gone up. In other words, we talk to one capitalist employer who tells us he raises prices because other capitalist employers have already done so. This is a very nice evasion, but it leaves the rest of us who aren't employers watching the people screwing us, excusing each other by blaming each other. This is not very interesting and doesn't analyze really anything. Let's talk about a couple particulars. Food is going up. Energy or oil or gas going up. Yeah, but that's again because, here we go, the food company employers and the energy company employers are raising their prices. They don't have to do that. They want to do that. And their profits are what they're using as the measure or the guide to do it. And that's why they're doing it. And here's then the conclusion. If you want the inflation to stop, then stop it then have the government come in. It has the power. 
We know that because President Nixon back in 1971, simply by governmental action, imposed a wage price freeze. We know it can be done. It was done then. The prices will stop rising. End of story. But you have to have the political will. You have to have a leader who understands that he can do that. You have to have a leader who understands politically that he should do it. And in the end, that depends on whether the mass of people, you, me, everyone listening to this program, is willing to put the pressure on these politicians to do what needs to be done. And that is to interfere, that's right, in the freedom of private enterprises to jack up prices when they think they can get away with it. They think they can do that now. They know a lot of money has been pumped into the economy so that presumably people who need to pay higher prices will be somehow able to beg, borrow, or steal the money needed to do so. And that's what they're doing. And they're desperate, and they keep doing it as long as no counterforce steps in. Not the government and not the people who are at this point grumbling but not much more than that. Richard, the price freeze, wage price freeze that you mentioned that Nixon enacted in August 15th, 1971, that was one time it happened in modern U.S. history. Another time was during World War II. Between 1939 and the end of 1942, the consumer price index had jumped about 24%. But then the government, the Roosevelt administration imposed the Emergency Price Control Act of 1942. So obviously it was it was also passed by Congress, I believe. Anyway, that shows an immense government power to be able to impose a wage price freeze. Monitoring it, policing it, that's going to be also complicated because every boss, every employer will definitely enforce the wage freeze but keeping control or the price controls over maybe millions of commodities more complicated, more difficult. But obviously, it had a very big impact, as Nixon's wage price freeze did in 1971. So yes, the government has this kind of ability, this kind of authority. Now, I want to make this point. The Federal Reserve Board is really I called it the dictatorship of the banks or the dictatorship of capital in the beginning, because it really is. I mean, the Federal Reserve right now, which is, as you said, has as its function to maintain price stability, is using monetary policy, meaning jacking up interest rates. There's going to be another Federal Reserve meeting on July 27th. The expectation is the price, the interest rates will be hiked either 0.75% or maybe even 1% on top of the last rate increase, which was 0.75%, a very, very big increase in interest rates in a short amount of time after the Fed had basically a zero interest rate policy for several years as a consequence of the, the depression, let's call it that, in 2008, 2009, and then again repeating during the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. But the Federal Reserve, unlike the government, which at least has the 
the nominal element of democracy. We do elect members of Congress or so far. We do elect the president so far. Who knows what will happen after the Supreme Court takes up the Moore case. But the Federal Reserve is really the banker's bank. And, you know, there's these 12 Federal Reserve banks. In each of them, there's a nine-person directing body. But six of those nine seats are actually, by the bylaws of the Federal Reserve, reserved for commercial bankers. So it really is a banker's institution. We don't know their names. And furthermore, the one person whose name we do know, Jerome Powell, he came from the Carlyle Group, private equity firm. He's the richest man in the Federal Reserve governance. He, he's worth, quote, $55 million. If the price of chicken goes up, which I've noticed because I do grocery shopping, if it goes up by 30%, I notice that. If you have $55 million, one, you're not doing your own shopping. And two, even if you were, you wouldn't care. Anyway, it's a dictatorship of capital. Let's talk about that. That dictatorship of capital is really what we otherwise call the market. In the United States, the market has the standing of the last several decades as if it were some kind of religious deity. You hear politicians say, let's let the market decide, as if the market were some ultimate judge or some dictator. And the market, we should look at it because it is a dictator in a particular way that's relevant to what we're talking about. When the price of anything goes up, here's how markets react. The first thing markets do is scream to low-income and middle-income people, hey, you, if you want to buy this loaf of bread, that gallon of gas, this pound of hamburger, whatever it is, we are now going to take more money out of your wallet than you used to give us to get this. So the inflation is going to hurt you. Whereas for a wealthy person, whether you have 55 million or only 2 million, this news at best is in a moment of amusement because you are not hurt by a 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40% increase in the prices of many goods because it doesn't matter to you. So right there, before we get any complication, markets distribute things unjustly, unfairly, according to how much money you've got to put into the process of buying things. For those of you who believe in ethics or morality, you ought to think about why you adulate markets. Why? Let's take it the next step. What happens in most markets is sooner or later, for one reason or another, something gets to be in short supply. Maybe there's a problem at the production level. Maybe there's a problem in the supply chain that brings objects from where they're produced to where they are purchased. Maybe it's fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. Markets don't care where the, or why the shortage arises. But the minute there is a shortage, people begin to become aware, ooh, there's not as much of that around as there used to be. 
And given that those of us who want it haven't reduced our desire, but the supply has been reduced, the only way I can get what is now in short supply is if I offer more money for it. That's why prices get bid up when there are shortages, because that's how markets work. The bidding is the way people work out. How do we divide up something in short supply when the demand for them is more than the supply? You don't have to do it with a market. You could distribute, for example, if it were milk in short supply, you could say, okay, people who used to use the milk to feed their pets, you're going to have to do without so that we can be sure to distribute the scarce milk to the families who have children to raise because we believe that is a better way in our society to manage shortages. Societies that don't do that, that quote unquote, leave it to the market, are societies that are organized by and for preference to the richest people amongst us because they're the ones who can always get it no matter how short the shortage is because they have the most money with which to bid up the prices, whereas everybody else can afford the higher prices. Last point. People who defend markets reason as follows. No, 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 you should let this happen because, they tell us, as the price is bid up by the rich people so that they get what's in short supply, that will send a signal to the producers of whatever it is to make more of it because look at its high price. The mistake in this kind of logic is really basic. If I can explain it in three seconds, which I just did, then you can be very sure that every producer of goods and services has long ago understood what I just said. That is, the producer understands that if he or she responds to rising prices in an inflation by producing lots more of the item, the shortage will disappear, and so will the high price, which is why they don't do it, which is why producers get together as often as they have in the history of capitalism to agree amongst each other not to increase the production so they don't lose the nice high price. Mr. Biden just spent many hours in the Middle East talking with the leaders of Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, begging them to increase the supply of petroleum in order to bring down its price. They smiled at him and explained to him what I'm sure he already knew, that they have their own needs for higher prices and higher profits, and they're just not going to do it. And that's the end of the story for you, Mr. Biden, they said. If those folks who are not one whit brighter than anyone listening to this program, if they understand all of that, there is no excuse for anyone else to live in the crazy world that suggests that the market 
which always distributes items in short supply to the richest amongst us, is the best we can do as a society. It never was. It isn't now. Any of us could easily, whether we are Christians, Jews, Muslims, or come out of any other religious or secular tradition of ethics and moral behavior, could come up with a better way of handling shortages than giving it to the richest people amongst us. The market is an institution which deserves the criticism which this country, as a kind of taboo, never gives it. Now, these are so important in terms of understanding the narrative here. You know, after 9-11, after the September 11th attack, the U.S. reorganized its foreign policy, its military policy. It basically went on a tear, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, the bombing of Libya, the attempted takedown of the government of Assad. Those were just supposed to be the beginning steps. The ultimate prize was you know, to take out Iran. And in the Bush administration, what was so interesting after the attack was that in this reframing of U.S. foreign policy, one of the top priorities for U.S. foreign policy, according to the U.S. government, was to promote American values, meaning free market values all around the world, as if the United States was going to actually intervene in different countries go to war against different countries, occupy other countries, carry out drone strikes to assassinate targeted individuals in other countries in pursuit of this noble cause of promoting the free market as if the free market conflates with human rights, as if the free market conflates with democracy. And the point that you're making, Richard, is that the free market, so-called, isn't free. It's not free in many, many different ways. But it's actually the opposite of the promotion of human rights, the promotion of the idea that people should have access to that which is necessary to sustain life or that which is necessary to promote human beings and societies and neighborhoods and children. But this dominant narrative about the free market has really had a big, big impact on people's consciousness. And the reason I wanted to end on this is that the name of our show is The Socialist Program. We, we decided deliberately to have an explicit name that we are the opposite of the so-called free market because it's not free and that there is an alternative and the alternative actually must be presented so that people actually can grasp it. And the alternative is socialism. But weirdly, not that weird because it's been intentionally done, if you ask most people in the United States about socialism, many, maybe not the majority anymore, and certainly not the majority of young people, but many will say, well, socialism is the opposite of freedom, while the free market is the thing that distinguishes capitalism and conflates it with democracy or human freedom. Anyway, I just want to get your final comments on this because this narrative really has done so much to shape consciousness. And what we need to do is to create a new consciousness. Yes, let me just drive home that same point by pointing out that when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, 
as they have already done, and as you quite rightly said, they are scheduled to do in about a week from now when they meet next, the only issue being how much they're going to raise it. We have, again, an inflation because an interest rate is the price you pay to borrow money. If you raise interest rates, to borrow $100 is going to cost you more than it used to before the interest rate was increased. So they're playing the same game. Who gets screwed if you raise the interest rate? The answer is the people who can't afford to pay that interest rate. So for example, if interest rates go up by three quarters of a point or a whole point, as you pointed out, it means that the monthly car payments you face if you're trying to buy a new or used car the same price of the car, but your monthly payment is going to go up to cover the higher interest rate. That means people who can't afford a higher monthly payment will be having to do without the car. You're allocating the money, the loan, as well as what the loan would have been used to buy to the richest people. Those who are very rich don't care what the interest rate is. They never did. So once again, notice that the Federal Reserve is using a mechanism that systematically discriminates according to your ability to pay. If you're poor, you're screwed. If you're in the middle, you're almost screwed or you're screwed too. And if you're at the top, you don't have to worry. A decent society would not permit this to be the basis for how you distribute credit in our country, how you loan money to people. If they need it, if they have to borrow, is it really appropriate to hit them with an interest rate they can't afford while you're allowing wealthy people who don't care? Nobody would support this if they were given an honest rendition of what it means. That's why Nixon, a conservative Republican, was smart enough to institute a wage price freeze. At least it hit everybody the same. It shouldn't because we're not all in the same position. It should help those who need it most, but at least it didn't help most those who need it least, and that's what markets do. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism. It's been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 